What is good, y'all? Welcome back to Highly Visible and A Little Misunderstood. It is your boy, Jonathan Dumas, and I'm so excited to be with you again this week, continuing our series, Entrepreneuring While BIPOC. Last week, you heard from Ashmi Patel, a life coach for millennials who wants some ease, who wants some grace, who wants some gentleness in their lives. Wonderful, wonderful conversation with my friend there. Um, already got some feedback, so shout out y'all who uh, hit me up about the episode. I loved it too, trust me. This week, I am sitting down with my friend, Alanike Mensa, just a wonderful human being. Met her, gosh, a couple years ago at this point now, and this was a time where we actually hadn't talked in like six months, so it was a really good time chatting with her. But before we get to that conversation, we got to get to the podcast logisticals. First things first, different ways to support the show. Number one, support us financially. Uh, again, we have the Patreon page, which is the monthly support that you can do. It's a three-tier, a five-tier, and a 10-tier. Also have a coffee page, which is a one-time donation. Shout out again to the folks who donated um, that one-time dono. Um, I did indeed get a coffee. Thank you. You can go ahead and check that out. The link to the, both of those are in our show description. The next piece is, is our email list. If you have not signed up for our email list yet, um, and you, I don't understand why you wouldn't do that because we have stickers and they have our logo and they look cool, really, really nice. Maybe I need to post a picture about those. Maybe y'all, maybe y'all need to see the pic, the the, the stickers. Um, first hundred people to sign up for our newsletter, or excuse me, our email list, you will get a sticker for free. I'll send those to you because um, once they're out, they're gone. And then if you want one, then you have to just pay a sum for them. Um, <laughs> as far as our merch, uh, that's going to be launching next year. Yo, you. Um, and you'll know that because you'll be in our email list. Third thing is, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, rate the show, share the show, um, leave a review for us. We read all of them. They're really, really helpful for us, and they help other people find the show. And uh, I think that is it for Pod Logistics. Let's get to this highly visible story of the week. All right, y'all. So highly visible story of the week. We're going to dive into a legal showdown that could have massive implications for voting rights in the U.S. So attorneys with the American Civil Liberties Union are gearing up for a major showdown after a recent panel ruling shook the very foundation of how the Voting Rights Act is enforced. Now, if you're not familiar with the nitty-gritty details, let me break it down for you. So there's this key provision in the Voting Rights Act called Section 2. It's been a crucial tool for individuals and groups uh, not representing the U.S. government to challenge issues like redistricting and voting map changes. So these cases have been vital in protecting the voting power of people of color. But here's the twist, y'all. A U.S. district judge ruled earlier this year I think back in February, that only the head of the Justice Department, essentially the U.S. Attorney General, can bring Section 2 lawsuits. And guess what? This ruling was just upheld this week in a recent 2-1 vote by a panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, this could set the stage for a significant Supreme Court battle. The panel argues that Section 2 might not be as privately enforceable as we've thought for the past half century, the dissenting voice, which is the Chief Circuit Judge Levinsky Smith, argues that fundamental rights like those protected by Section 2 should not depend solely on government discretion because we know what happens when we only depend on government discretion when it comes to racism. And you know what? Many experts think that this Arkansas case might just end up on the Supreme Court's docket. 
Now let's zoom out, or excuse me, let's zoom in on Arkansas particularly. The state's NAACP and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel filed a Section 2 lawsuit claiming that the state house map dilutes the voting power of black citizens. The numbers don't lie, y'all. Even though 16.5% of the state's population is black, only 11 out of 100 state house districts in the redistricting plan are majority black districts. If y'all aren't catching the math there, that's 11% compared to the 16% population of black folks. Uh, Math ain't mathin'. So the lower court recognized the merit of the case, but the panel's recent decision has left the civil rights advocates devastated. They're now considering alternative routes, like a federal statute known as Section 1983, to continue the fight. Now, if you're like me and who didn't know what Section 1983, thank you so much for asking because I asked that same question myself. It's a federal law that allows individuals to sue state government officials when their civil rights under federal law are being violated. It's become a go-to tool for cases like this where private citizens need a way to challenge actions that infringe on their fundamental rights. Now, if you're wondering about the broader impact, legal battles like these aren't happening in isolation. Similar Section 2 lawsuits are popping up across the country. Um, The Voting Rights Act has been under attack for decades, um, and it's been chipped away at for decades, um, and this is just another attack. These lawsuits are challenging the very core of how we draw political lines and ensure fair representation. And as we've seen with recent rulings in Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, the courts are grappling with the question of who has the right to challenge racial gerrymandering and voting power dilution under Section 2. This is huge, y'all. The ACLU is gearing up for a full court press, hoping to bring the issue to the Supreme Court and ensure the protection of the rights that voters have fought for and sometimes died for. So we shall see. All right, y'all. That is it for the Highly Visible Story of the Week. We are going to get to our conversation with um, Alanike. And I will say this. I'm doing something a little different with this episode because normally I, it's going to sound a little wonky because I normally do like a little chit chat with guests that I bring on. And then I, um, and then I delete that. But what we talked about in the very beginning was like so good. I was like, oh my gosh, when I was editing this, I was like, I got to keep this. This is so good. Um, so check it out. So it's going to sound a little wonky, but it is what it is. Um, all right, y'all. Here's the episode. Yeah, it's been, it's been nuts. So, oh, we haven't like talked, connected in a minute. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Mm. I'm, I'm in a more sort of balanced place than I think I've been in a while. So yeah, Yeah. I'm good. I love that. I love yeah. that. And you? Um, hmm. I'm, I'm okay. I think uh, this month has been like really, really full. I knew it was going to be, but it has been a whirlwind. Like in the last three weeks, we've just like been outside of our home, our 11 yeah. or 12 days, just yeah. traveling, wedding stuff, big celebration stuff, yeah, and just going to... Oregon, Colorado. And to be honest, they have been very, very white spaces. So I think it's like, because it's on my partner's side. So I think it's been pretty draining for the most part. But I had a really good question or conversation with Lens when I was telling her of like, you know, I think a couple years ago, like I would actually be like anxious. Like I would be super anxious to go into these spaces. I noticed there's like another level of like emotional growth for me. 
in secureness in me and my blackness showing up with my two strand twists and like yeah. you know my like all the gear I wear when I would have probably changed what I wore in front of yeah. it's just like I, I don't care you know yeah and I don't have to give them an answer that satisfies them as long as my uh, answer satisfies me yeah and so I it's like um it's like another level of of growth for me and mm-hmm. I still get like I think I was thinking about this yesterday I get like social anxiety when I'm in a, mm-hmm. a, a around like a lot of white people and I mm-hmm. feel like there's some phenomenon there but I don't know mm-hmm. what it is but um Oh, so I know. Just, what it uh, is. All that says, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, you did. Wait, what, I what love is that. It? I feel that on a different level because I travel back and forth from like, you know, all black, well, mostly black countries to the U.S. Mm. and it's like mm. it comes on like a shield. Oof. Yeah. Like I get into the airport, and if I'm making a connection or if it's straight to the U.S. and it's like I feel the mm. first time it happened, I was it was like the first time I traveled back to Nigeria after being in the states forever. I was like what is happening? Like it caught me off guard. So there's like, Mm. there's like an armor, you know, people talk about the armor. Like it is a like psycho, emotional, mental thing that Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people even recognize that there is something that is happening in our psyche and our bodies automatically. We don't have to think it for it to happen. So yeah, I totally get that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So okay, I'm I'm glad it resonates because I was just like, I know there has to be some sociological term that I just probably have never heard of or thought about, mm-hmm. but like I feel like I've talked to enough people of color, but black folks in particular, were like, I gotta go, I gotta get around some other black folks because I this is just like <laughs> being surrounded by it's just like exhausting, exhausting. Yes. And I already did 11 years of that when I lived in Orange County, and I'm not doing that again. Like I don't <laughs> willingly put myself in positions like that. Like, I don't mm-hmm. do that anymore. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is, yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's good. So uh, you talked a lot about, like, your business, but I would love to hear uh, more about you. Like, what do you do? Who is, you know, who is O? You know. Affectionately known as O, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. The next journey for me is figuring out how to even answer the question who I am. Because there's like the workplace, mm. like business answer. And then there's like the who I am as a human being, right? Um, yeah. And I think there's probably an introduction in the middle that I'm, I'm still in the process of figuring out. But, um, but I mean, my workplace, you know, answer to that question or my working professional answer to that question is is about being, you know, a workplace equity strategist. You know, I believe that people deserve workplaces that deserve them mm-hmm. and and have people that are in the decision-making seats um, making that a priority, right? Like making sure that they are not just saying that we want to magically have a healthy culture and a workplace environment that makes everybody feel like they can bring their best selves and all the things that people say, but that they're doing, they're investing in that, in the outcome that they say they want and not just investing Mm -hmm. financially. Leaders have to invest energetically. They have to invest time um, and and show up in so many ways, right? They have to invest their commitment over time. <laughs> so, um, so as a, as a, as an equity workplace equity strategist, I really work with 
helping organizations embed equity into the systems in that organization. Mm-hmm. So like the systems, the policies, and I help them in lots of different ways uh, to do that with greater clarity about what they're doing and why, greater confidence in that they're doing it in a way that's going to be meaningful and really effective and sustainable mm-hmm. in the long run so that when they leave or the people that they train today are not there tomorrow, that the work yeah. can continue. And it's not dependent on the Mm -hmm. bodies that were in in a particular workplace in a particular time. And ultimately, that gives everyone confidence that they're doing work that is meaningful and that they're doing work that is sustainable, is strategic Mm -hmm. and sustainable over time. Um, And I do that via a lot of different strategies and ways that we can get into. But like that, that's that's like what I do and who I am for work. (laughs) that's the answer my like woo answer is like i was inspired you probably heard of the organization girl trek where they were doing this they had this campaign about like our mothers like who do we come from um like Mm. ancestry wise and and culturally wise and it inspired me to write this bio that was more about like i am the daughter it was called the daughter of like i am the daughter Mm. of and i really talk about my lineage in that mm. bio. So that's the other bio that I can't seem to find. But um, but yeah, I think as we as we go through the conversation about how my identity informs my 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 work as an entrepreneur, I think some of that will come out um, for sure. But absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, and I'm I the love, founder, which maybe I should have started with. I'm the founder of Mosaic. Yes, <laughs> you see, like my mind is not even there. Like I'm really trying to shift the whole paradigm. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> yes. Mosaic consultant, y'all. That's, that's the one. That's the, look it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's so interesting that, like, you're the second person in a couple weeks that as we, like, open up the conversation and kind of, like, not introduce ourselves to each other because, like, I know you have known you right. for a year and some change now. But, like, I met this person. I got connected with him. And I met him through... Well, his name's Theon Freeman. Shout out to you, Theon. But we were just talking about this, how like when we introduce ourselves, especially as business owners, entrepreneurs, for us, it feels like kind of confining one to to define yourself as like, I'm a, for me, I'm a career transition coach, a consultant, Mm -hmm. podcast host. Yeah. And but there's just so much more to me than just those things. How do we infuse yeah. like a level of humanity into uh-huh. into like our introduction and how mm-hmm. folks see, feel, be, and how do we embody those things, right? In a very, very real way and in the way yeah. that we communicate those things. And so like that's even been a journey for me. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, for my coaching practice, how I how I pitch it is that I I support Black millennials to experience career joy. That's, 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 that's it. And we can have a conversation further on that. And then yeah, I'm still trying to work good. out what the consultant, what that consultant piece is like as an organizational mm-hmm. psychologist. And then even what the, as a podcast host, I think I, I may have landed yeah. on it, but I'm not too sure. It's like, yeah. it's like, uh, I have nuanced, I have, uh, nuanced conversations about very big things. And so like those two things, and I haven't landed on the consultant piece, but I feel like, yeah. How do we input our values, like who we are, and integrate that and even yes. into our introduction? Yeah. And I'm wondering, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I'm wondering, does that have a lot to do with like our breaking away of like these 
these kind of mm-hmm. systems and ways of being that are that center whiteness. Um, yeah. For me, I would say yes, but I don't. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you What do you think about that? I think so, and I think it centers whiteness. Whiteness, capital W, whiteness Inc., which is separate, which is not yeah. about. <laughs> it can overlap in the Venn diagram, but it's not about, you know, like white presenting people. The racial identity, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. yeah, I think it has a lot to do with it because mm. having grown up the way, for me, the way that I did, when you introduce yourself. It's in a context where people are listening for like where to place you in mm-hmm. yeah. like in these like societal categories that we have. And yeah. so when you introduce yourself and then as you like get into like workplaces where you're introducing like what you do and what your title is, like, you know, I've had so many titles. I've got from coordinator to regional supervisor to director to interim executive director to VP, senior VP in the court when I was in corporate, like, so yeah. I, people are pegging you based on <laughs> what these words are that are coming out of your mouth. And people are trying to, even on LinkedIn, it's like, what do I want to put in the hashtags of things that I talk about? Because, and how yeah. do I want to describe myself, right? And all of that is rooted in the dominant culture of whiteness that reg, that kind of dictates how we engage with each other in those spaces. Um which is very separate from like, you know, if I'm invited over to go to a family dinner or a gathering or whatever with a friend and you're introducing, I mean, sometimes I guess people can eventually ask you what you do, but when you're introducing yourself is like, oh, hey, like, tell me about yourself. And it's like relational based. It's like, oh, I'm so-and-so's friend. Or like, yeah. it's a different way of introducing ourselves when we're amongst each other or amongst friends in a in a different context, but yeah, I do. I do think when we're talking about being in business or working for other people's businesses, um, mm-hmm. that whiteness is that. Yeah, it's dictating what how we introduce ourselves, and it's one of the things that when you shift from working for other people to working for yourself, now it's like mm-hmm. you can decide. Yeah, how you introduce yourself, and you know everybody's a CEO of something <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Um, chief, whatever officer, all the creative titles. Yeah. I have a friend who goes by Chief Vibes Officer, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of. Cool. I love it. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, totally I, uh, agree. I think I've made the shift more specifically even before. Like, I think it was when I decided that I was going to be working for myself, but it was mainly like. So, and I know everybody listens to the show. I know y'all get tired of me saying. <laughs> I lived in Orange County for 10 or 11 years, whatever. Y'all still tune in. It doesn't matter. But like I lived there and the number one question that I asked nine times that, that I was asked nine times out of 10 was like after my name was like, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm like, right. and I'm like I, I just, uh, I get it. Like I, I get it that those are like, oftentimes we've been socialized to ask that question. In college, yeah. it was like, what did you study? You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, to your point, like, how do we move past this, like, transactional piece, right? Because when we what we do know on a macro level about whiteness is it's transactional. Yes. Um, so how do we move to, like, engaging in a communal, relational, like, relationship right off the bat, even, like, in the introduction? And, like, that's what I've tried to shift to. Yeah. And I have friends here that I met here that I didn't know. 
I, I've known for probably two years. I had no idea what they did for work. You know what I'm saying? Right. And like, yeah, and it's it's just like a different a different like it's a different relationship when you like build off of that and you're not trying to to your point put people into boxes and like how you fit in. I was yeah. just at a party this past weekend and it was older folks, older white mm-hmm. folks that were there, and they kept asking me what I did, and I would say I well I, I'll talk to you about like my passions because it actually aligns with um, the things I'm passionate. About. Oh, and I so like that. I told them about my. Yes. And so I told him about my podcast because that's the thing that I'm most passionate about. Mm-hmm. The second thing is my career transition coaching. And then I said I'm an organizational psychologist and I'm part owner of a consulting firm, like a small yeah. boutique consulting firm. Yeah. They don't know what to do with organizational psychology because like literally nobody. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny when I tell them I'm an executive. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's so interesting to your point, how they latch on to the things that like make sense to them. And so yeah. I talked to somebody for like 30 minutes about the podcasting and then I talked to somebody for another 30 minutes about the mm. coaching, but nobody asked me about my org psychology work, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, yeah. it's it's so it's just very, very interesting what people try and fit folks into mm. as a as the entry point instead of like our humanity as the entry point. Yeah. Right? I mean, so, but I love mm. I love the pivot, even if someone were to ask, what do you do to say, I mean, I do a lot of things, but I mean I I I I, I can tell you or I'm let me tell you about my passions. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'd love to hear about your passions too, right? And it's exactly, kind of like, exactly. let's have a conversation about what we care about. And if that connects to what we do, then that can come up organically instead of just like, I do yes. this, 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 this. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Really yes. Like um, so uh, I love this conversation. We talked for like 10 minutes about introducing ourselves. <laughs> I know. We're going to be here for like three hours. oh like you already talked about your business and what you do and kind of like i could tell that you're passionate about it and there's just so much alignment we've had plenty of conversations through diversity community group where we met yes um but i don't know if i ever know or like heard the story of like how you made the transition into entrepreneurship like what was that transition like for Mm -hmm. you so one of the new things that i'm starting to think about is that my entrepreneurship journey was almost destined (laughs) because Mm. I come from a long line of market women. I'll explain what I mean by that because ethnically I'm Nigerian and, and businessmen of what I know so far, my great grandmother on my mother's side and great grandfather were basically what you would call an entrepreneur today. But back then it was like market women they grew things, they procured things, they were in commerce, and then they would sell things. We're talking, you know, historic ancient Nigeria. And I recently learned, and I'm married to a Ghanaian now, we met in the in the States. I recently learned that my, that great-grandfather on my mother's side, who dealt in a lot of different things, you know, commerce-wise, also dealt in cocoa, which is where most of the chocolate that's around the world still comes from West Africa. I think like Ghana, where I'm, where I'm at now, was like the number two or number three producer of all chocolate, all cocoa, like literally globally. Um, wow. So I found out that he traded <laughs> with Ghanaians way back when. Didn't didn't know that. I also found out that I have an uncle on my dad's side that did the same thing. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that we had like 
business people. <laughs> I yeah. should do air quotes. It's the same thing. It's just not yeah, it's um, like capitalist, but it's like commerce, right? Which is a, yep. another distinction um, that comes up for me as I do as I do this entrepreneurship thing. Um, and then that got passed down. So I have an uncle who was literally like literally a global businessman mm-hmm. and was wealthy beyond what I could comprehend growing Mm -hmm. up. Like I literally went with him and my cousins to a car dealership after college and he paid for two Acuras, like wrote a check. (laughs) Just cash. And I was like, my gosh, what? How can you do this as a Nigerian in America? Like my mind was (laughs) blown. I was stupid. I had no idea. Like, oh, that's how you yeah wow. like and you got to be like rich rich because the transfer Bro. rate you are rich that means you are rich rich <laughs> you got money you money got what yeah. i'm saying right so i was like yeah. oh you know and got his passed on now but man i wish he was still here because now that i'm here like so many things i wish i could talk to him about <laughs> like yeah get, get oh yeah now you're an entrepreneur <laughs> I know. And I was like, at that point, I was like in AmeriCorps, you know, I was a lot of my career was in the nonprofit space. So I was like in AmeriCorps, you know, volunteering and, you know, street service projects and things like that. America was giving us like a peanut, like stipend, I don't know, like $300 a month or something crazy. But shout out to AmeriCorps and shout out to Public Allies, which is a program I was in. It was a beautiful experience, actually. So I have that example. And I have other uncles that were also able to really get into business um, at different varying levels of like regional and intercontinental, like in Africa and otherwise. But they were always far, far removed from our Mm. existence, like our day to day. And my mom, my mom actually got a degree, a graduate degree from the University of Missouri. And that's when they had me, my parents had me while they were in school in graduate school in Missouri. And she went back to Nigeria and was like a college professor and things like that. But then we ended up moving back to the States, another long story, maybe for another day. But when we moved back because of racism and white supremacy, which I didn't realize at the time, no one would hire her. Even with a master's degree from University of Missouri, it's not like some no-name school not that that should matter anyway, but it's like, wow, she couldn't get a job. So there's a lot of immigration policies and things that were shifting around that time that also impacted that experience. But she ultimately was like, okay, I have all these like home economic type skills. I will open up a a shop. So she opened up like a a salon, a boutique. And so my experience was us living, like us going from being like essentially like a middle-class family in in Nigeria and then all of a sudden being in like poverty in the States because Mm -hmm. of all these systems that were working against us. Then she was like, I can tap into this this market woman (laughs) energy that we already know and we have. I also found out a couple of years back that my grandmother on my mother's side was also a market woman, she would grow things and she would walk miles and miles to like the biggest market on market day and go sell like fruits and vegetables and things. So wow. there's a part wow. of my story that is rooted in this that I'm just now like, oh my God, this is all, this is all connected because growing up, I always would get ideas. Like I remember in high school because we would go to laundromats to do laundry being like, why is it that these machines can turn bills into coins? But there isn't a machine that can turn coins into bills. Like, that would be useful. 
and that didn't exist back then. Now it does, <laughs> Coinstar or whatever yeah, it is. But yeah. like, I would have all these ideas, and then I would see it happen like ten years. I was like, "Dang, if I had some money, I could do these things." So my mind yes. was always like working as like ideas and gaps and up like what is available, what isn't available that people need. So it was always there. Fast forward to 2015. I had worked at this nonprofit for many, many years. I kind of moved up the ranks and I was actually doing um, DEI work. The first time that the organization, which was a, a, a organization that was serving young people in different cities across the country with college access and like coaching experience to help them kind of develop some personal resilience characteristics and translate the way that they were resilient in other parts of their life to like this academic pathway. So I was really deep in that work. I started out as a program director and like went, that's went all the way to like working at the national level and on the talent team. And that's where I got to do my first like official role doing DEI work. Because before then I was just a loud mouth everywhere I worked. I was just like, that's not right. That's not fair. We need to do something about that. Uh, and now it's like, somebody was like, how about we make that part of your job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. I love it. So, so it was great. So ever since then, it was always part of my job. I ended up landing in, in FinTech at a global financial firm, which is another story, another long story, but it was another kind of seed in what can happen if we look at what people can do versus like yeah, yeah. all the distractions, what degree they had, what jobs, what big companies they've already worked for and da 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 da, da because mm. I should I should I shouldn't have really ended up in that job. But the person I was talking with was like, I see how we could really benefit from you being part of the cybersecurity team. Or this it was tech mm. inf- information security team. And it was great, but I got to do DEI work in a corporate setting for the first time. And all through eventually I was like this is what I want to do. Like everywhere I work now, I'm like, where can I do this DEI stuff? (laughs) Like when I started working, it didn't, DEI was not a thing that was as prevalent. It was actually D and I, right. And even like there was even a time before that where it wasn't like a, a, a conversation that was being had. I decided that I wanted to go out on my own between the nonprofit job that I was just talking about and the corporate job. I had a really difficult time because what happened is I actually left. I moved out of state and they didn't want me working remotely. So they laid off, they laid me off and it was a really painful experience. And I was like, what am I going to do now? And And I ended up in the corporate job. But in that gap, I had decided I want to do equity work and I registered. It was like a DBA was like first registration. And I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And then I got the corporate job and I was like, I'm going to get this consistent check and do yeah. <laughs> this consulting on the side. <laughs> I have bills yes. to pay. I still have yeah, college. Not for the state of heart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my um, God. But ultimately after, even after a few years there, and I was like, I was, it was like gang buff. I was doing great. I was climbing the ladder. People were talking about me. I was on the local, regional, national ERGs and all of this thing. And I was like, you know what? I just want to go back to doing just equity work. This is where my heart is. So I made a plan to get out Mm. 2020 before, like in 2018, I think I started realizing I need to make my exit from here. And I made a plan. Mm. 2020 was going to be my exit. Then March, 2020 came and I was like, uh, COVID who's quitting a job? Like 
a good paying job. You just got your SVP. You just got your cred, right? Like in a corporate setting, yeah, yeah. you're quitting a job right now. A lot of like formal and unofficial form, informal therapy from family and friends. And, and that's how I did it. But like for that two years, I was like side hustling. I was like weekends, after work hours, doing a lot yeah. of work and then went full time eventually. Amazing. Amazing. I, I, I love that too. Because my, my road was kind of like unconventional. I feel like a lot of, a good amount of entrepreneurs and business owners that I'm meeting now that are full-time, like did it during the pandemic. Well, we're still, mm-hmm. we're still in it. Uh, but yeah, um, but yeah it, was, it was during that time. I tell people, I'm like, I don't know if my route is the most conventional or makes the most sense because it was yeah. really the most risky. I just, I just knew that like, I couldn't, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing and I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know where I was going to go next. So um, mm-hmm. I think it's actually Lynn's, my partner. She actually was like, do it. She said, just do mm-hmm. it. Like, oh. you're not well. Yes. You're not like, you're not, just do it and we'll figure it out. And she was yeah. unemployed at the time. She had been unemployed for a while. That's and a lot of like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And she believed in me enough. Yeah. Um, and saw the vision and was like, just go for it. And like, if mm-hmm. you, if somehow, like, you know, we create a plan, we got some savings. If you need to get another job, get another job, please. But, you know, I mean, two years later, I still, I'm still doing it, like doing, doing the damn thing. So, no, I love that, that that's just like, you know, even, even still, right? Very similarly, I was like, found my stride. I was in a job that I actually really loved, mm-hmm. but like something was truly, truly missing. And I wasn't, specifically doing the things that I really, really wanted to do. And so I think, why not? You know, why not? So it sounded like you had a good amount of support as well. What kind of, what was that process for you too? Yeah, almost like very, very similar. I had a partner that was actually that first layoff story. I texted him. I knew something weird was happening before the conversation. I was like, oh, this is why y'all haven't been inviting me to meetings. Okay, now I see what's going on. And... He came home that day with a card. I think it was like a graduation card. <laughs> and it said, congratulations, da 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 I still have the card somewhere. And I was like, who gets you a congratulations card when you just got laid off? But he was like, you've been set free. You can now do something else. This is a celebration. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. But then I got the corporate job. And then when I left, we had like a, we had a toast. <laughs> on my last day because it was like that same support of like you can do this you already have you know uh, enough evidence of the pro bono and almost pro bono work that you're doing on the side to know mm-hmm. that like what else, what other evidence do you need that you can you can make this shift it was all internal it was all like you know that that immigrant experience right of the class differential that happened when my family moved from Nigeria to the U S and making five, six, seven times what my mom had to, you know, cobble together. It was just like, what? I'm going to leave this job. But yeah, the support of our partners is huge. It's huge. And it's still that way today. There's still times where I'm like, I'm shutting it all down. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's definitely. a big, it's a big, it's a big factor. Absolutely. 
another big factor that I've like slowly, slowly, like not slowly, but I've definitely embraced more so as like my blackness and infusing like my identity and like everything that I do. Cause it's just, it's so important. It's two part for me. The first part is Mm -hmm. that like, there was a time where I legitimately, and I said this before, I legitimately did not like being in my skin, Mm -hmm. did not feel comfortable being black. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to black. I didn't know how to do it. I just did everything I possibly could to distance myself from my blackness. Yeah. Right. So that's like, like, that's that first part. And so like when I pull back the layers of like the confusion, the pain, the unrealistic expectations that society one puts on me, mm-hmm. black folks we put on ourselves and each other, and then individually me, the expectations I put yeah. on myself to yeah. be a black man, um, particularly in America, it's just like, I realize like how much I can like embrace my blackness in, whole, in, in a holistic way that is like uniquely me mm-hmm. um, and who is to say what it's supposed to look like, number one. Yeah. But, and on the second side is like the reason why I'm so about like my identity and it, like embracing it, particularly in my, in my, in my work as a coach, as a consultant is because number one, it's <laughs> incredibly important. And so I, I, I really infuse my identity and a lot of who I am like I have started to interweave into like my work. So for you, like, I'm curious, what is, has your role played um, bits and parts? I know you mentioned a little bit of it, but has your, yeah. has your identity played a role in, 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 in what you do with your work, how you go about your business, so on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like the way I went through some sort of major life shifts at different like developmental stages in life. Like, you know, uh, educators talk about like the developmental stages that children go through. I was born again in in the States when my parents were here um, in graduate school. I don't think they would have called themselves like activists or blacktivists, but I, but I feel like they were because they made the decision to return to Nigeria and leave America after getting their degrees because they were there was a move then for people to, you know, like go to universities all over the world and kind of learn different things and then come back and use it to kind of build the nation post-colonialism. So I was born and sort of like, you know, cooked in that transition. So I was born in the States and then we moved to Nigeria when I was about two years old. And then eight, nine years later, I, we moved back to, to the U.S., to Midwestern. USA, which was very interesting, (laughs) and to a very, very, very white context because of some circumstances. So the seeds, the seeds of what I do now and how my identity was shaped definitely led to, led to where I am today. I think that um, I often describe life as having lived at the, uh, the, living life at the intersection of difference. Because I feel like since birth, that was the thing. For example, I'm the only one in my family that was born in the U.S. because I happened to be born when my parents were here studying. My older sister was born before they came. My younger sister was Mm -hmm. born afterwards. And so that meant that I had a privilege being an American citizen that no one else had. And my parents did not intend to stay or return to America. But my older sister had a really terrible fire accident. Like she was basically on fire as an adolescent, as like a 13 year old. And there was a lot of medical care that she was able to get in Nigeria, but it got to a point where they were like, 
you're going to have to go to the specialized hospital for burns victims in the U.S. to be able to get these final like surgeries done. And I remember having a whole family meeting <laughs> at the age of what was it, like eight or nine to say, like, this is what's happening in our family. And we want to get your thoughts as kids. So you don't really hear about African parents involving their kids. Like the stereotype <laughs> is not that they're involving kids and hearing your voice in like a decision yeah. that's going to impact you. But they did yeah. that. And we said, yes, we want to we will go through this difficult time of being separated as a family because the outcome is that you know, our sister is going to be more whole and, and, and help and well, this is all like <laughs> happening around me around the age of eight, nine, 10. And then we move wow. to the U S one by one, because it turns out she's going to have to be here for years on end for repeat surgeries. And the family, mm-hmm. you know, my parents didn't want our family to be like disjointed and separated. So he made connections with some people he had met here and we came back. They connected us connected him to a contact they had um, in the city that we were moving to, which happened to be a pastor, a Southern white Baptist pastor of all things mm. <laughs> that was that was running a church in Ohio. None of this, like, I'm just a kid, right? So I don't know any of yeah. the like overarching context of anything that I'm in. So we show up in America and lots of stories that family actually, still today, I'm always holding my breath like, I'm going to find out something about them that's going to be like, (laughs) what? But I still haven't. I'm like, oh my God, I think they were actually like genuine good. They're actually good. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, y'all are white. There's something. Something's got to be wrong. So, (laughs) but I mean, this is 30 years of knowing them now, right? We lived with that family for a while. We were at like Christmas dinners and all these things. So yeah, that's that's how I know that good white people exist. So like when I yeah, yeah. when I talk about whiteness, I'm really not talking about individual white people because though individual white people can be real left, and because mm-hmm. we were kind of living in their world at this very important like developmental stage for me, I didn't realize a lot of the the subtle and really overt racism that I was exposed to because I was exposed to other mm-hmm. people in their orbit until much later. But anyway, I digress. Coming from a place like Nigeria that was colonized and all the things that I learned and I I still continue to learn about what that that means in in the present day and moving to a place like America that was also colonized and with indigenous people being brutalized and African people being enslaved and all of that brutal history, faced with the existing brutal (laughs) practices of, you know, oppression. Uh, Like I was feeling all these things, but didn't have language or context for it. I didn't refer to myself as black until I was 10 and we moved back. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't a thing. I was in Nigeria. We were all black. I don't remember the first two years in Missouri. Like I don't have those memories. So there's just so much about like my identity, not just as a, as black and woman, which is like enough (laughs) to have to tackle as a business owner doing equity work, like as an equity practitioner, business owner, mostly with clients in the U.S. right now. There's all these things that were part of like my my identity development and socialization and experience. There's a fact that I'm a middle child. There's a fact that I believe that I was an undiagnosed ADHD kid because I was the kid that was climbing on the furniture and doing all the things. (laughs) 
And my, my family had nicknames for me, but ADHD or any of that never, ever, ever came up. And I think it might have been a good thing because of the way that I've mm. seen kids get labeled and put in a box, especially black kids. Yeah get labeled yeah, and put yeah. in a box. But finding out that I have adult ADHD, I'm like, oh, it's all making sense now. Um, mm-hmm. So so that, um, there's an interesting picture that I share in my TEDx talk of my family when we were in Missouri those first couple of years where my entire family is in like Nigerian traditional wear. And I'm in this like very European, like bright blue dress. And I like showing mm-hmm. that picture because I'm like, it says so much about like, yeah. Wow. Even the way that I was different within my family. And so yeah. I've just always had this like sensibility around who's in, who's out, who's being viewed and treated as different, whose voice is being minimized. I had also experienced being in a place where I didn't have to think about my identity in the way that I then had to think about it once I got to the States, where I literally felt like instead of being this rambunctious kid who was climbing furniture and who was always going to tell it how it is. And like, that was my natural personality. All of that got pulled back when I moved to the States. And I was in that context where I was like, okay, there's just so much about my identity and the development that gave me this like visceral, like I feel things in my body before I even like feel them in my mind or like put words to Mm -hmm. them. Like something Mm -hmm. here is off. And I don't know what it is. Yeah. I may have to sit with it for a couple of days. Sometimes I never figure out what it is. And then it's like three years later and I'm like, that's what it is. That's, that's why I didn't like that. <laughs> that's yeah. why I thought yeah. that was some BS going on. And I didn't even know like what it was, but I was like, yeah, that's, that's not right. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah all of that, like, all of that plays into why I do what I do and how I do what I do. Like I resonate with like, for me, like I always notice difference. I always, I yeah. notice when people are not being included. I notice like yeah. there's plenty, been plenty of times in my life where I'm like, don't talk to them like that. Like, why are you doing that? Like, I don't understand why you're doing that. Like mm-hmm. just shutting down the bully. Like I could never be bullied because I didn't know, like people try to bully me and I'm like, okay, like I don't, it's not. What is that? What you're doing is not funny <laughs> to me. It's like not yeah. funny to me. And then yeah. other people would step in and stuff. I'm like, yeah, like that, because that's what should be happening. So it's always been like really, it's always been ingrained in me as far as like what I've seen to like stand up for for folks, yeah, stand up for folks, speak for folks, yep. um, encourage them, empower them like they can. I've just gotten better at it as I've gotten older. Uh, yep. But yeah, I, I think it just speaks to like where we come from, who we are, like infusing that. Like I think that there is a resistance as far as like when we're talking about whiteness, Inc., right? Uh, yeah. where the the separation of work self and professional uh, work self and yeah. personal self yeah. which those two things never existed anywhere it's this false binary of mm-hmm. existing that just never really exists actually right it never it yeah. never truly i would say this actually more specifically it never truly existed for any marginal marginalized community within the workplace ever exactly yeah. never existed it mm-hmm. never existed because like we we saw it in 2020 most recently but i think with the introduction and infusion and explosion of social media just like the exposure and this the national and now global grief that the black mm-hmm. diaspora is experiencing i think it is wild that i can feel something grieve because i'm seeing the death of another black person yeah and I say person because it's inclusive of the entire community, trans, gay, 
woman, all of it, right? I want to be very explicit when I say that from now on. Um, but but yeah. like grieving this, right? And somebody yeah. from the UK can have that same feeling of grief, yeah. right? It's, it's like there's something to say to that. And so like mm-hmm. for me growing up, being told, you know, in school, in college, whatever, and getting into workplaces, like, no, nah, like we don't talk about this stuff. Well, why not? Because like it's impacting my work. Like I literally can't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. even to even to like a more of a micro level of folks who who are experiencing like any kind of stuff at home, like it just doesn't make mm-hmm. it's never made any sense to me to like create a separation of that. And by all means, create those boundaries for yourself. Do whatever is like comfortable to you. But I'm not going to pretend like I have an emotion that's not there, right? Like, I think yep. there's an expectation sometimes when I was in corporate still of like, happy-go-lucky Jonathan. Happy-go-lucky Jonathan mm-hmm. doesn't exist all the time, right? right. And I think that there is a level of freedom that I have found, particularly in this last year of, I am too tired to work. Like, I'm too tired yeah. to push. I'm too tired to do this. I'm too tired to do that. And I think that there's parts of me that I don't know if I, like, when I say identity, like my blackness, my gender, my class like even the, the trauma and everything like that all of all of who i am mm-hmm. like i don't know if i would have gotten to the place that i am at if i did not become an entrepreneur and was actually forced to face these things like i yeah. think as business owners as entrepreneurs particularly mm-hmm. entrepreneurs of color black entrepreneurs yep. that like we are we have to like have to like navigate and embrace these things and 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 try and like figure out like what this means for us and how are we going to show mm-hmm. up? Because it's like you're asking yourself these questions when we're even thinking about marketing stuff. Who am I? Yep. That's a very big question. <laughs> and who do you want people to see? Yes. <laughs> like it's like, just wait, a very serious. <laughs> yes, yes. Like I'm just it, that just hit me now. It's like yeah. the question of who am I and who do I want people to see was yep. huge for me. Yeah. Just now realizing why it was so hard is because like I'm black. And mm-hmm. there's all of these things that, that mean that. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. male. There's all these things that mean that. Like, I have a younger looking face. Although I am young, but, like, I have a younger looking face. I'm not. Like, People I'm don't believe me when you I know? say how old I am. I'm like, yeah, black so, don't crack. Ain't you you ain't heard? I mean, hey, I, hey, you better say it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's, it's all of these different things and, and ways of, of being. But I think my, for me, I'll say because I'm a mask presenting person is that mm-hmm. like my blackness is the most overt, obvious yeah. thing that should, that people see. That you and see. when I choose yeah. to put my picture up, right. Mm-hmm. When I choose to put my picture out there as a coach, as a consultant, like that is communicating so much, yep. so much. Mm. Yep. Mm, 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 I, I remember, mm. I think it was when I worked for, for the, for, I don't say their name. When I worked for the for the for the corporate firm, <laughs> for that place, for that for that spot, uh, yeah, that there were people that would not put like their picture on their profile because when you're, this is just like inter office messages because we, you know, the infrasecurity team was interfacing with everybody that was in the tech division but also people outside of the tech division from time to time. And I was like in the COO, like chief of staff kind of function within the group. Mm-hmm. So we were often interfacing with like the HR team, the diversity and inclusion team, the like operational excellence team, all these other teams that were outside of tech. 
And we were also interfacing with people in, in other parts of the world. It was like a global gotcha. team at the same time. And so there were people, there were colleagues that would not put their face on there because they were like, people make assumptions like mm. about you. And they've, they've done their own personal study to know like, it's better for me not to actually put my picture on my, like my email mm. profile account and just leave, leave it generic. I mean, like, this is the kind of stuff that people are doing every day. <laughs> every single day. The other thing every that people day. are doing every day, somebody gave me this advice early on, and it was actually at least a white presenting, because we never talked about identity, male presenting colleague. But very early on, I was like, I think this is probably bad to do, but I was like, I think he's on the spectrum. I don't know which one it is. Like autism, ADHD, whatever. And the only reason why I had enough like knowledge for that is because one of my best friends is a whole psychologist, Dr. Mm -hmm. Davis, and my sister is a school psychologist. So I have a lot of conversations with them about what these, how these ways of thinking and being present. And I got to a point that I was like, oh my God, I think that's what's going on. Because I started to notice how everybody else was treating him. And I didn't care that he was white or male presenting. I was just like, this ain't right. I think yeah, what he's, yeah. I think y'all should listen to what he's saying. Why are we all dismissing what he's saying? Because you don't like the way he presented it. And I remember yeah. one time off the cuff, because we didn't have a personal relationship, him like breaking down on the phone with me about like how hard it is to be who he is and how people don't listen to him. And it caught me off guard because I didn't realize that what I, in my advocacy of him and in the way that I would respond to him, that it had had an impact to where he felt comfortable enough to even like share. I was just like, how, why, how am I having a therapy session with you right now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was so caught off guard, but yeah. there's so many of us. This is one of, one of my soapboxes that I, that I stand on. Get on the soapbox. I love a good soapbox. Is like, listen, the, 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 the detractors that be, the powerful detractors that be will have you think that DEI work and woke work and all this stuff is really a different form of segregation. It is not. It is yeah. about equity. And there's a study actually, probably more than one by this point, that says that proved through the study that once you implement you know, a lot of this like policy level, like, you know, decision-making practices that are more equitable into a workplace, everybody actually fares better, 100%. including the people 100%. that are currently in the dominant demographics in your workplace, yep. because it'll help somebody like my colleague, who you would think, because he's white and male presenting, does not have any issues. But yeah. he was struggling because of that that, you know, identity that, I mean, again, he never, he never like revealed all of that to me, but I'm like, especially yeah. now that I've now been diagnosed, I'm like, that's what that was. And that's why yeah, I was yeah. able to empathize because I was like, mm -hmm, yes. no, that's not right. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah. You're, you're so, you're so right. Oh, cause it is like, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be mindful of this even for myself because it's not just race gender and i guess sex i guess right but um but in the u.s the context is it's like race and sex like that's the predominant narrative yeah but it's like race gender sex 
Um, yeah. Uh, neurodiver- the neurodivergency. Um, yeah. Yeah, neurodivergency. There is like nationality. Uh, caregiver, not caregiver. Nationality. Yes. Caregiver, um, family language, status. Documentation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So many different things actually go into this broader thing. And mm-hmm. my soapbox is, is like, we all got to be off the table. And like, yep. if you if you have an issue with that, then like you got to work that out. Like, I'm not gonna kick you off, kick you out of the table, or push you away. But I'm like, let's like figure out what that is because it, it's it's just so it's apparent to me. Like, it's so apparent yeah. to me. Like to get like the most full bodied, like or not full bodied, the fullest picture of yeah. not just coexistence but co thriving, communal yeah. relationship. All of this mm-hmm. is like we got to all be there, right? And so I, yeah, we we yeah. can go off on that, but yeah, yeah, but it's like, but it it ties into that like identity piece. I I know that like the main part of our conversation is like entrepreneuring while like black yeah. whatever, but it's it really is is like I think to your point about like and the, even the studies that show that like implementing these policies within an organization actually increase thriving, worse sleep satisfaction. Fulfillment, yeah. joy, everybody. What we're talking about, if you implement it into your life, I, I really truly think that it will make your life better. Right. Yeah. You ask, like, how am I showing up in the world? Like, mm-hmm. am I showing up transactionally? Am I showing up yes. relationally? What am I leading with? It's really yep. gonna be it's really it really is transformative. Like this has truly transformed the way I engage with people. Like because it's not I, I, I used to get so nervous because I'm more I'm definitely an introvert. I, I know this is shocking to folks, but I'm Same. like Me too. 70 to 75% introvert and like the rest is 30. When I, when I enter a conversation now, when I'm like meeting somebody from LinkedIn or I'm like, you know, sending that message where I'm connecting, I'm like, yo, like, let's chat. I want to know more about what you're doing and like leading with how can I like, what are you creating in the world? Like, what are you excited about mm. creating and how can I help you like expand mm. that reach? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like what I leave with that question, people love that freaking question. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I like have like a greater a, like relationship. Like I love yeah. seeing people like light up with what they're creating. I love people light yeah. up with like, you know, what they're doing from work. I love what people are saying. Actually, I'm just, you know, I'm not creating anything right now, but yeah. that's a good question. I wonder what I could create. I wonder yeah. what, I, what, 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 what is that thing, right? Yep. And so, I don't know, even if you're not a business owner, I feel like that there's like, the, there's a level of resonance of how you show up yeah. in the world when you yeah. think about your identity. Mm-hmm. It's like incredibly crucial. I want to ask you about your, because uh, I know I kept you for a while, but I want to ask you something about like, I've had a few conversations and like, I actually infuse it into my practice around values and like understanding values. I'm curious for you what your values are. Um, and how do they show up like in the work that you do? I could probably go on forever. I, I did an exercise where we did like our family values a couple of years ago, but much of that is like resonated with with my personal one. But I, I had a personal one some years back and it was, I think elements of that are still true. And it was to live in love, in spirit and in truth. And that was like my thing. This was like fresh out of college. I was in that AmeriCorps program I was talking about. I was living in living in the outskirts of DC. I'm working in DC at the time. And I was like trying to figure out, I was trying to actually like, I was interrogating a lot of thing about how I was raised and like the, the different religious or like faith practices that I had been exposed to and different pockets of it. And 
Like we went to that very, very white church. (laughs) But ultimately, it was also a really cool experience because the church had given some space to a Korean church to meet that didn't have space. As a result, and a lot of it was Koreans uh, went there, Japanese uh, folks were there. As a result, we had like this melding of the youth groups across that church Mm. and ours. So when my, when our youth groups showed up at camp or all these different things that would go through in the summer, we were incredibly diverse and everybody else was like lily white, <laughs> like at all these, yeah. you know, Southern Baptist convention things that we would go to. So uh, lots of stories <laughs> there, but it meant that I had, I had best friends at church and best friends at school and they were black I had one best friend who was from the South. They had just moved from Tennessee. I learned a lot <laughs> from her about what that experience was. I, I, you know, And then I had another friend who it turns out that her dad was queer. And we started to know this because he would, we saw it as cross-dressing back then. And like now the, you know, the evolution has evolved. But at that time, I was just like, okay. <laughs> like, I am, all right, fine. Then I, I had a friend that was like lily white. <laughs> All the whiteness, all the stereotypical white girl things you could think of. But that was my friend. And then I had another friend that was that was Korean. I'm still in touch with and, and close with. So like I had this very unexpected international experience, even though all around us was all this whiteness. My mm. Korean friend is the only one that I could have the conversations about all these white things happening around us with. So I had an outlet yeah. even even back then. But what was really, I think, kind of developing and cemented over time for me, even as I like grew up, went to college, you know, met people that were like five percenters and Rastas and like all these other traditional like African religious practice, all these other things. I realized that all these experience, what was rooted and what I navigated to in people from whatever walk of life they were in is like an essence or a spirit of love. Like Mm. it didn't matter to me the way that you connected with the divine or like your inner self, if it was rooted in love. And I recognized that as something that was important to me. So the love piece came out of that. And it's still a value I hold on to in my work because ultimately I'm not trying to reverse hierarchy. You know, I feel like a really critical question to ask ourselves and to ask people that we want to work with and to ask people that we might maybe coaching is, do they ultimately believe that, a hierarchy is the way that things should be. And someone is always going to be at the top of the food chain and at the bottom, because that's a very different way of like viewing the world than a more communal kind of view. Like I believe that humans created higher. We like to talk about the animal, you know, kingdom and all this stuff, but we made, we made a lot of that up too (laughs) to suit our needs. Even if it is in the animal kingdom, like we have a different set of cognitive ability as human beings. We don't have to do it that way. So like this, this value of really all of this for me is rooted not in a spiritual faith love because everybody, you know, there are some people that don't believe in any of that. I honor that Mm -hmm. as well. But in like, I love all of us. And I feel like the way that things are, the inequities and the injustices that we've inherited from the folks that came before us is harming all of us in different ways. So part of my value that I bring into this work work is like, you know, I want that, I, I, it, it's, it's rooted in a love for humanity and wanting all of us to be truly liberated. 
because even even white racist people are not liberated. Like I feel bad for them. They're sometimes. Not. Like really, they're not. Oh, they're not. It must be awful yeah. to feel and yeah. carry all that hate. How how? So that's that's an important value to me. And I won't go too deep in the in some of the like into everything, but like I definitely value equity as a result of that. You know, fairness to me, which means equity, which also means justice. I feel like you can't talk about fairness without equity and you can't talk about equity without justice. Like how? Mm -hmm. So all of those are are things that I really believe in. And I guess the last thing that I'll talk about is the reason why I called my business Mosaic is because I have always, in ways that I didn't even recognize before I became an adult and was working and managing people and managing teams, I've always believed that no one person knows it all. And when you bring a collection of people with different identities, backgrounds, ways of thinking, ways of even speaking and and communicating and engaging, when we're all gathered to try to move some, whatever it is along, the mission of the organization we're working with, you know, some goal or project we're working on, ultimately, if we can figure out all the things that are going to get in the way of us, like actually connecting with each other, once we do that, whatever it is we're working on is going to be a hundred times stronger and better because you had a mosaic of people together trying to work on that one thing. And so I really believe that workplaces need to strive for, for a mosaic of talent that are thriving, that have enough true safety, <laughs> that feel like their yeah. voices are heard, they can contribute and all of that things. They can make mistakes without, you know, repercussions or unfair or inequitable repercussions. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so good. Um, I want to ask you my favorite question to ask folks. Yeah. <laughs> so like, what is, oh, what are you creating in the world? Like, what do you, what have you created? What are you creating? This question is coming at the right time. This is why we haven't done this. We didn't do this six months ago or whatever, because I really landed on some things with my summer pause that, that I was telling you about. It allowed me to really do some reflection about where I wanted to go in my, in my work. What I really am excited about is I have been using some proprietary tools that I designed and developed and tested and piloted. I've used it in client work for the last three, four years now. And they are all, you know, I don't know, you know, like evolved versions of things that I was doing when I was doing DEI work inside of nonprofit organizations, inside of schools and inside of corporate environments, corporate tech, the tech environment that I was in specifically. And somewhere recently, the light bulb went off that these are, these frameworks are, they underpin the way that I work with clients and they're valuable in and of themselves and can help other people, can help organizations to kind of like the DEI or the HR leaders, whoever's in charge of their equity efforts, it can help them as tools to be able to like evaluate and assess how they're moving the work forward. It can also help peer consultants in how to do that. So what I've been doing is really pulling these, I'm starting with six of the different tools and things that I've like honed over the years. And I'm in the process of getting two, maybe all three of them like registered and, you know, legally protected, which is another part of the black business thing. Like as a, you know, I was, I was raised and taught about social justice and grassroots movements from people that were in the 60s and 70s doing this work. Like I 
sat at the feet of some incredible people. And so there's a part of me that's like, this knowledge is for everyone. You don't, you don't do the the supremacist thing of like IP and protect your stuff. Like you should maybe share it, but I'm a black woman. Yeah. And so many stories of black women's black people, people of color, indigenous people's wisdom being swiped and monetized without any credit. So many of our people have just died penniless while their inventions were co-opted by other people. And so that's just an example of like one of those like hairy, hairy moments where it's like, ah, my value system of trying to do this work in a world that I wish existed, but doing it in a world Mm. as it currently exists means Mm. that I have to play this IP contract game right and so i was like okay you know like we're living in the tension i'm figuring out as i go as everybody else is so i'm gonna do this and i'll figure out you know i'll figure out other ways and new models as i go and talk to other people that are navigating these tensions right but these three frameworks i'm I'm really excited about one is about belonging and engagement in a workplace it's part of a broader equity audit that we do at mosaic and that one is a survey that goes out to um, employees and it basically can replace like three or four other surveys that most places do most places are gathering eeoc data if they're big enough they're gathering um, engagement data. That's a different survey that hits people however frequently that, that they're doing that. Sometimes, especially in the in educational settings, they're doing something called climate studies, where it's like, let's just assess the culture and climate of a particular environment. And then there's like the typical like DEI, not typical, but like all the different DEI questionnaires and surveys and things. And this is like one tool that can be an annual, semi-annual tool with pulse you know, questions in between that can take away, it's like one tool for the four or five that you do. Because I really believe that we've even segregated people data in our workplaces. Like we integrate all of this data, make sure that we're doing data analysis in a way that brings in what we usually don't consider data, like people's feelings. That's data, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Absolutely, Um, absolutely. And use all of that insight to build strategies and and solutions and recommendations that can, again, be at that systems policy level. So I'm excited to like Mm -hmm. get that going through the, you know, the, the, the registration process, trademark and copyright things, and be able to share that more freely with people. Yeah. And I also have something that, um, that I use and teach about a lot in my workshops about like the pillars. Like if you have an equity strategy or some kind of plan roadmap that you're following, Usually at some point you're like, eh, this isn't working or this isn't working like we thought it was. Like, what are the questions? What are the pillars that you can kind of go to say, are we doing this? And how's that going? You know, like you kind of go through this list of six things. Um, And that's something that I want to really get out there in the hands of practitioners, whether they're in-house or Mm -hmm. consultants or maybe even like executive level leaders that are making practitioners lives hell because they keep asking them nonsense questions and wanting nonsense metrics. And it's like, that's, those are not the right questions. <laughs> yeah. They're not even the same thing. Like I, 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 your heart or at least your business you know? mind is in the right place, I guess, but like, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Not the same thing. Yeah. 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 So I'm really excited to finally be like, taking all these tools that I've been using mostly for myself on, on client work and like bringing it out to the fore and making that something that can have 
more impact. The other thing that I'll say is because I spent so much of my experience in the nonprofit sector, specifically organizations that prioritized or like focused on youth, focused on service and focused on education. And a lot of the service was local and global service because of my like international Mm. life experience. So those organizations, I'm like, you know what? I should start telling people that like they're my jam (laughs) instead of just being like, I can work with anybody. I can, but like, I get really excited and I'm like, I think that's the, that's like my ideal client is nonprofits Mm. that are doing that, that type of, of work or a B Corp business, which is a designation that businesses can get. I'm actually going through a program to be able to support businesses that want to become B Corp. And the short tagline for that, I don't know if you've heard of them, is that they prioritize a triple bottom line. So profit, all business are doing that, but planet, so they have an environmental, environmental commitments that they've made and institutionalized into their, their legal paperwork and and policies Mm. and people. So people, planet, profit are things that they've prioritized. And there's a lot of different like strategies that you get, you like would ask questions about and then give them some recommendations about. And I find that it really integrates well with the audits that I already do with clients. So I'm really excited about getting like that more into, into the world as well. Dang. I love that. And I actually didn't realize there was three pillars. I just assumed uh, the planet aspect of it, but I didn't know that there was an integration of people there. I might want to get some more information about that. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. Let's Something along those lines. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. But anyways, amazing. Oh, this was so wonderful. Long time coming. Thank you so much. I'm like, it was, this was incredibly fun. I always like talking to another multi-hyphenate coach, consultant, equity-focused, justice-driven. Oh, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Go ahead and where can folks find you, connect with you, keep up with what you're doing, maybe work with you. If there, I know some people that listen to the show that, you know. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. My website is mosaic4, the numeric4, equity.com, because I'm all about equity. Since day one, I was like, this is, this is what makes sense to me, and this is why. Um, so mosaic equitycom you can find me at different iterations of that. I think on Instagram, I had to put an underscore before the four or after the four. <laughs> on LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Alanika A. Mensa, but I also use the hashtag mosaic 4 equity on a lot of different posts. So if you look for the hashtag, you will find me. You'll actually find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. If you type in hashtag mosaic for equity, like that will be, that will lead you to my accounts on there. If you're interested in perhaps a conversation about how we can support you with our mosaic services. So we have equity audits, we have well-rounded holistic, we look at your people and practices. We look at the belonging and engagement survey I was talking about based on that framework that I mentioned about like, what do people need to feel like they belong and to be able to like engage? So there's a whole survey around that. So yeah, different sorts of, we have a racial equity competency survey that we can give like your executive Mm -hmm. team or your board. Um, So if you're interested in any sort of those strategic audits and assessments where we then build you an action plan, definitely get at me. I'm also starting to do more like coaching and which, coaching and advising around your equity strategy. Find me if you're interested in like fractional DEI equity support type services. If you're interested in like VIP day packages, 
I'm also thinking about putting together a cohort experience, like six weeks, a group of people that are in charge of equity work. And we work through those six pillars that I was talking about and really look at what you're doing and where you can have maybe some better traction. So, and I also have one-on-one like advising packages. So there's lots of different ways. I have a cool, cool team. I call them the Mosaic Collective. Some of them are on my website, not all of them, but there are so many people in my crew that do so many amazing different types of coaching work, training work, facilitation, et cetera. I have somatic people. I have people that are even Mm. more woo-woo than me. They'll do like astrology coaching and stuff like that. Like (laughs) if it's about evolving individually or as a workplace towards greater equity, towards greater liberation, Mm. towards greater alignment between like who you are and your identity and how you show up in the world, like we can probably help you. So reach out. There's a contact form on my website. That's the quickest way to get a response because somebody is watching that and getting back to people more quickly than anywhere else. So, yeah. Amazing. All right. And I'll plug as many of those things or at least the main things in the show notes as possible. But y'all have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, morning, whatever you're doing. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next time. Bye.